Now if a six turned out to be nine, oh, I don't mind, oh, I don't mind if all the hippies cut off all of their hair. listening to the quarter to three games podcast for late april my name is tom chick and my game of the week is not uh, uh broken sword part one and my name is mark doyle and my game of the week is not pimps at sea is that that's a real th- wait is that a real thing or is that a bungee joke it was the uh the bungee april fool's joke from what seven or eight years ago did they ever make it I don't think they made it, but we had a corresponding page on Metacritic for it using <laughs> defunct publications, giving you know a variety of fun review scores for it. And the people took that a little bit more seriously, I think, than they did the actual fake game. Uh, did Metacritic do any April Fool's uh, shenanigans this year, Mark? We, we, we did not. We, we actually rarely ever do that. Uh, thank you for that, by the way. I, there's <laughs> nothing quite so tedious as people thinking they're being clever on April Fool's. And, and I think about 5% of the April Fool's gags are actually clever. I would agree with you, Tom. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Mark, you are – I actually don't know this. Are you the uh, – I know founder, but also uh, president, CEO, uh, head honcho. What do they call you over there at Metacritic? Uh, I wear a variety of hats, but basically it's the games editor and then just the head of content or the editor-in-chief probably works. And now you did – correct me if I'm wrong – you did basically invent Metacritic, Yes. Uh, my co-founder, Jason Dietz, came up with the name and the basic concept and then brought it to me in August of 99, and we flushed it out and then brought the third member of our team, who was my sister, Julie Roberts, and, and we really sort of honed the concept before we eventually launched it in 2001. So it's mm-hmm. a three-person three deal. Uh, I'm sorry to do this. I'm sure that this is as annoying this is annoying to you, kind of like those 95% of April Fool's jokes, but did you just say Julia Roberts? Actually, it's Julie Roberts, and that's an, uh, people confuse that every now and then. Uh, so it's not not the not the star. Okay, uh, sorry, I couldn't help that. Yeah. Uh, so uh, and answer. So what if you were to give me your card? Let's say we're like at a at a convention or something, and we change, exchange cards. What does yours currently say? God, that's a good question. Let, let me see if I even can find one here. Um, oh boy, one does not have any title on it at all, and the other one says "Editor Video Games." Okay, so there's a separate editor for uh, movies, music, TV. Right. How yeah. is it that you came to be the dude in the games department? Well, you know, we've, we've we've switched it around over the years. So Julie, shortly after we launched, became the film editor. But Jason, Julie, and I were all huge movie fans, and still are. Um, and it, Jason was the big uh, music guy. He was a DJ in college. He's an incredible knowledge of the music industry, so that was natural for him. And, and really for me, I've been playing video games since, you know, Atari and television, ColecoVision, all that stuff, and through college. And um, it was really just post-college for me that I had gotten into reviews. Uh, I remember I, I just bought a Genesis, and I was traveling in Europe, and I had, uh, I think it might have been a Electronic Gaming Monthly, but they had basically reviewed every game available on the Genesis and that was sort of my Bible for the next, like, three months. I just <laughs> took it literally, like, these are the games to get. 
And uh, and so eventually, when when the idea of Medicare came about, I thought, oh wow, gaming's got to be a natural here. So we extended it to to that realm, and uh, I just basically chose to head it up. How did uh, other media get folded into Metacritic? Um, we, we started out primarily as movies and music, and, and games was kind of an add-on at the beginning. It, was, it wasn't an afterthought. We knew it would work, but we didn't launch with it as a full-fledged section of the site. Hmm. Um, then we did that. Then we actually added books in 2005 or 2004, and that, that section actually did pretty well for a while. Um, when we got to be a part of CNET and CBS, they said, you know what, let, let's add TV, which is more of a natural. And uh, eventually in 2007, they curtailed and stopped the book section. Which well, was books a bit got of a, kicked off of Metacritic. It, it did. And that was a <laughs> disappointment for me, but I'm, I'm hoping one day it'll come back. Okay. Uh, tell uh, me a bit about how things vary by uh, media as far as do you guys have to treat games review scores and reviews differently than movies and music? Uh Break down for me some of the challenges you have having so many different types of media on Metacritic. Sure, sure. I mean, one of the main differences between movies and games, let's say, is that a good half of all major movie critics don't score their reviews at all. Mm-hmm. So, so then our, our readers and our editors really have to get to know those critics well to um, not only sort of be able to, to, to read an individual review, but say, okay, this person would probably give it a 6 out of 10, you know. And, and we hear from those critics a lot, too, like, hey, you gave it a 6, it's more like a 7. And then we'd love to get that kind of feedback, because we want to get it right. Mm-hmm. Um, in the games world, it, seem, it seems to be that most of them are scoring their own stuff. There, there obviously are major critics out there that don't do it. And, and, you know, three or four years into the process, I carried, like, two or three of them, New York, New York Times, Variety, that weren't scoring. But the gaming community seems so keyed in on the, the precision of scores that they got really anxious about that. And, and even though, you know, I had heard from a lot of these people, like, for example, my contact at the New York Times, who would actually pu- publish his review and send me his suggested score. So I thought, great, this is not going to be a challenge for me at all. I, I can do this. But again, people got so worked up, they wanted to see that score, they didn't believe me, or they thought the imprecision there was was disappointing to them, unlike the average moviegoer, and like, hey, if Metacritic's going to estimate what the Wall Street Journal gave to this particular review, we can live with that. Not so in games. Can you explain, do you have a theory for why that is? Can you explain why games are so uh, much more obsessed with score than some of the other media? I think in general, maybe it's just that, you know, people are, are more focused on game reviews, uh, because it's such a, it's, a, it's an expensive proposition, first of all. You know, some of these games can be 60, 70 bucks. Um, if you're really going to get into a game, it's, you know, 10, 20, 30-hour commitment. I mean, it could be 200-hour commitment. So people want a little bit more advanced education on how good something is, as opposed to a movie, which is, you know, a couple hours. And so I, I'm personally much more willing to risk a bad movie. I mean, a movie with a bad Metascore, let's say than I am a game that might have a bad Metascore. Just because of that, I'm in and out in two hours. Sometimes seeing a bad movie is fun anyway. I mean, you know that. Mm-hmm. And um, But with the game, it's like I really want to do my homework a little bit more. And so that, that's why that, that section of the site, I think, has a little bit more scrutiny and people are a little bit more involved with it. Uh, the flip side of people being involved and, and caring is I imagine you get a lot of people who are very angry. Uh, a lot of people who are invested in scores and that investment can take the form of a very uh, emotional engagement, say. Uh, how do you handle 
so, so there are a couple of angles I want to ask you about complaints. One, of course, complaints from publishers uh, who are obviously unhappy with the score. But ha- tell me first how you handle complaints and what kind of complaints you get from from users. Because as someone who writes reviews and uses scores, I see a lot of people who get angry about a score. Uh, and obviously, I know sometimes that anger is directed at you for including certain scores in the aggregate. Uh, tell me a bit about some of those complaints and, and how you react to them when they come from uh, from consumers. Sure, sure. And, you know, I, I get basically every email that comes into Metacritic, at least stuff that has to do with content editorial. So I see it all. Huh? I, I've seen it all for 14 years. Huh? So um, there's quite a variety of things. But, yeah, I mean, going right to you, let, let's, we might as well. Since sure, it's, let's do it. It's the yeah. elephant in the room. <laughs> yeah. So, so Tom, you're willing to, let's say, tell it like it is maybe more than the average game critic. So if you really didn't like a game, it doesn't matter to you that it's a big AAA game. It's a beloved franchise. You're going to tell the truth. And maybe you'll give a two out of five, uh, which we you know equate to forty, um, more than the average. Maybe if somebody else might be a little bit disappointed with the game or, or really disappointed with the game, they might not drop below a sixty or a fifty. Right. Um, so people will. I mean, I, I think it's a combination of things. Um, again, if it's a beloved franchise, they'll have like this emotional involvement or, or ownership uh, with, with that title or with that franchise. So they, they, they'll instead of them seeing like, wow, this this critic is playing it objectively, is telling it like it is. It's like they're hurting my baby, you know. Mm-hmm. And so get this person off your your, your site. And so we, we've had many of those type of things. I think when any kind of a, a sub fifty type of score that you give, I, I might get thirty emails saying, <laughs> oh, "Wow." wow. Tom, Tom Chick, he's terrible. He hasn't played the game, you know, uh-huh. all that kind of stuff, which, which is obviously nonsense, you know. Um, and do, do you respond? Like, what? What is? Uh, what? How do you react to that? It, it depends on the, the degree of rationality in the email. Uh-huh. <laughs> so if it's simply like, you know, this guy, he's new to the game, his website gets no traffic, he's got no reputation. It's like, come on, you know, you're just basically lying. You're making stuff up. Right. If, on the other hand, they're they're looking at the review and, and they're bringing up legitimate points or, or you know arguable points, then I might get back to them, you know. But I think the point is is that I try to explain to people that you know I spend a, a heck of a lot of time researching the critics that we're going to use on Metacritic, you know. And I've been reading your stuff for years. I think we we started working with you in uh, the beginning of 2012. Mm-hmm. But I've seen you doing freelance work for years at huge publications. Um, I, I actually talked to a couple of other editors, you know, about you before we, we, we picked up quarter to three, and they were all highly complimentary. So I, I've got this group of informal advisors that get kind of that I, that I reach out to before I pull the trigger on a certain publication. But the bottom line is, once I'm super comfortable with a publication being on Metacritic, then I'm going to support them. So if they give a, a, a low score, or maybe they, they they go contrary to the rest of the herd. You know, I, I'm just glad to see it because I don't want people to feel like I'm pressured by the gaming industry or by the stakeholders or by fans of the game or the franchise. Tell the truth. Be fearless. Tell it like it is. And I'm happy and I'm going to support that critic. So uh, a couple of things you said that I, I definitely want to respond to. Uh, it occurs to me when you talk about people being angry uh, about a review because it's like – the, the game is their baby. There's this sense of ownership. Uh, I think that's probably a unique aspect of video gaming as a media, is this interactivity, this sense that I played this game, I made things happen, this game reacted to me, I'm personally invested in stuff. It's not this passive watching sense that you get with a movie or with reading a book. Uh, and I wonder how much that fosters people reacting more strongly when somebody else doesn't like that experience or doesn't respond in the same way to that experience. 
Um, so just that that idea of you've hurt my baby is that there's a, there's a piece of you in a game that you've played in a way. So True. I think people react more strongly that way. Yeah, I absolutely think that's right. Yeah. And um, it, it's a, it's a special form of entertainment, you know, yeah, that you yeah. don't get with as much with TV, movies, or music, the other sections on our site, or even books. But yeah, um, I mean, I was just thinking about um, her, the movie, uh-huh. and, and that video game that he was playing there. You know, <laughs> and, and the engagement that he that he has with that little—I don't know what he is—a little alien. You know, it was hyster- hysterical and endearing and funny and. And I can see that. So, I mean, I, I understand why, why people can react that way. But, um, but I, I would hope that sort of as the, um, as the sort of industry matures a bit and, and these gamers get, you know, a little bit more into uh, sort of appreciating the work that guys like you do, um, because it's important. If everybody just gave every game a 10 and, you know, everybody was, you know, uh, it was just, it's, it's not objective, you know, there's got to be a way to, to to call a spade a spade and say, you know, this game is better than this other game. You know, you've only got so much money to spend, you know, only, only so much time to spend on games. So why not pick the quality stuff rather than the stuff that's not so hot? That, that to me is a huge important part of how you should talk about it. Actually, any uh, criticism, any sort of reviewing, uh, to me, context is so important. If you talk about one movie, I also want to hear you relate it to, to five or six other movies or a genre. If you talk about a game, I want to hear about why I should play game A rather than game B or C and what it does that reminds me of games D and E and how games X and Y might be a better use of my time. Uh, yeah, that sort of context is a hugely important part of the conversation that I wish would be part of more reviews rather than here's this box, let's look at what's in it in isolation and discuss it. Uh, definitely, yeah. definitely. Yeah. And there are some of those games, like super highly anticipated games, big franchises, like Aliens Colonial Marines, you know? And if you mm-hmm. just sort of sat back, took in the advertising, took in the hype, before looking at that fat red Metascore, you know, you might just go ahead and buy it and maybe you'll, you'd be upset about it. I mean, Metacritic's just a tool, just like game rankings and any other aggregator. You know, mm-hmm. you use it if you want, Ignore it if you want to, you know, but I, I just hate going to a movie and, without having sort of checked to see like, oh, God, the critics hated this thing, you know, Then I go in and, you know, t- tough, you know, you, you, you learn your lesson versus, OK, I, I know that the critics probably hated this. For me, the classic example is Biodome with Polly Shore. OK, we got ha- one Metascore. So okay. it's like <laughs> for the lowest in our database. I love that movie. You know, so so I am more than willing to ignore critics. You know, when, when the time comes, if I like a particular actor, they just jive with me. You know, well, it's like you say, yeah, it is a tool, and it it it, it can like any tool, it can occasionally be useless in certain situations. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Uh, so speaking of that big, uh, sometimes red, sometimes yellow, sometimes green number, that's a, that's another elephant in the room. Uh, one of the things that I've talked a lot about in in writing about the criticism of games and reviewing is the way that scores are used. And one of the things that you and I talked about when I first came on board Metacritic was how different people will basically use different review systems that lead to different scales. Uh, and we, I think that there's a, an awareness of the industry of this idea that a lot of sites just use a seven to nine range, whereas other sites, myself included, use the full range. So when you, you very kindly say to me, Mark, you know, you tell it like it is, uh, I, I really appreciate hearing that. That's very cool of you to say. But I think more often what happens with me is I get a reaction because I'm using the full scale, is whereas if I had just not liked a game and given it a 7, which is what happens at a lot of sites, I don't think anyone would care. 
I don't think anyone would even read the review. Uh, a lot of times what will happen is that because I'm using the full scale, whereas another site might give something a 7, which translates to 70%, I give it a 2, which on my site means you know 2 out of 5 stars means I didn't like it, and it shows up as a 40%, which is far below what a lot of sites use, uh, and therefore people think that I hated it that much more dramatically or... Um, I become kind of an outlier mathematically, if not in terms of the, the stuff I've actually written about the game. So how much is that an issue for you that different sites, and, and of course not just me, will use different scales, whether it's letter grades, whether it's one to five stars, whether it's seven to nine, whether they care about breaking down, for instance, each point between one and ten, you know, the difference between a 7.9 and an 8.1. Uh, how do you deal with that? Right. I, actually, I want to just key on one point that you made mm -hmm. that is really not answering your question, but I'll definitely go back to your question. I, I think what, what singles you out is, I mean, a lot of sites, most sites will be willing to give a, a converted 20 or a 30 or a 40. Mm -hmm. But I think what you, you, you are willing to do is to take a triple A game that has you know, gotten largely really good reviews and you're, you're willing to call that one out as not so hot. Sure. And, and so whereas, you know, Game Informer, where, where they're, Seven is, is sort of like an outlier in the industry where, where for them, average is seven and then it's not five, where most of the other sites call uh, label a uh, um, the average. Um, it, you know, you, when you call out a, a very good game as poor or, or just, just okay, you know, the, the rest of the groups are not going to do that. Whereas they're willing to call, you know, a, a consensus bad game bad. Right. Um, okay. Anyway, that's, I wasn't really answering your question. So, but actually, well, yeah, I do. I do want you to get to the the diff how you handle the different scales. But yeah. I do love that you bring that up because to me, I, I I hate that. I hate this idea that just because a game is, is hugely hyped, it's part of a popular franchise, it has a big production budget, a high profile developer, that it deserves somehow recognition above and beyond what some undermade indie game gets. Like I hate the fact, Mark that in in movie criticism people can give a Transformers movie which is yep. going to be commercially successful have huge production values kids are going to see it in droves it's going to be review proof but but nobody is giving a Transformers movie a 7 out of 10 because there's there's so much money into it and, and yet a Halo I, I personally really disliked Halo 4 um, and, and nobody is going to even people who are just kind of meh about Halo 4 they're going to give it the benefit of the doubt with this kind of inflated score. Uh, so I hate this idea that you've just raised that a lot of franchises are immune to bad reviews, that, to bad scores. That bad scores are only saved for certain games that don't matter, that, that are indie, that no one's going to play, that don't have a big marketing push behind them. Uh, and we don't see that in movies, uh, or TV, or books, or music, I presume. Right. Uh, you, you really nailed it there. I couldn't have put it any better. And Transformers is always my example as well. Yeah. And it, it's, it seems like why will it, people are willing to dismiss movie reviews a little bit more when they're going into a movie. It's like, yeah, we, we know that Transformers is going to get horrible reviews. We'll see it anyway. But it's the, the idea that that deference that they give to these big AAA franchises that really it should not be there. Right. Again, you've got to be able to look at everything from that objective eye. 
And, so, uh, so there are for me two uh, two indicators that game criticism, just the the, the art of talking about games constructively uh, and and with, with discriminating values, uh, there there are two signs for me that that is going to happen. The, the first sign will be when we are willing to to talk about a triple A game. The willing we're the way we're willing to talk about a triple-A movie like Transformers. When that happens in game criticism, I think we will have grown up partly. The other thing that I'm looking for, and this is a my own little minor crusade, is when we stop including games in technology coverage. I hate going to news aggregates and seeing information about the latest game under technology, whereas movie stuff and TV stuff is under, under entertainment. I feel it's important to me at some point that we move it out of this idea of it's an electronic consumer good like a like a cell phone and we start talking about games as entertainment uh, no, i agree completely and you know in, in the last year we picked up three sort of mainstream well very mainstream papers toronto sun the globe and mail and the financial post and when i was talking to them it, I, I made the same point i don't want it to be like once every three weeks hitting the big game and stuffing it under that technology category as you say mm-hmm. put it in your entertainment section make it like movies cover two or three or four games a week I mean, the, the the gaming industry is getting bigger than the movies industry. I think I think dollar per dollar, it's much bigger. Yeah, well, it, it, should, so, it should be given the similar treatment. And, and I think it's inevitable. There's going to be a point where uh, there are fewer old people in charge of these media who don't really, uh, who aren't comfortable putting games alongside movies. Eventually, guys who think like us are going to grow up and be in charge, and it will happen. Uh, yeah, and, and you know, part of this also might have to do with just the the way that dollars are funneled into the, the publications that have the game critics, you know, especially the enthusiast right. press, you know, the endemic advertising, all that kind of right. stuff is tied in. And, you know, I, I guess for a site like Metacritic, you know, we're, once we find our critics, we're going to support them. So if they decide to pan a certain game and maybe next time they don't get that review code quite as early, you know, hey, you know, if you, if you need to go out and buy that game, if you need to wait a, a week and a half to play it and put up that, that next score, we're going to be waiting for you. That review will go up, you right. know. And hold that thought, because I want to get back to that as well. But uh, okay. so, 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 tell me briefly. So, you've got these these different critics. Some of you, which use dramatically different scales. There, there's letter grades. There's guys like me who try to use the entire range. There are people who use half stars. There are people who use one to a hundred percentiles. Uh, how do you reconcile all these different scoring systems? Or do you even feel that you need to? Oh, no. Well, let me start with this. So when I'm considering a new publication, I have this questionnaire, and it's got like 30 or 40 questions in it. It's pretty comprehensive. And one of the key questions is, explain to me your scoring philosophy. Do you have it on your site? Show me your explanation. What does a five mean? What does a six mean? Whatever. If you have numbers, if you have stars, what do they mean? Tell me the last five games that have scored the equivalent of 30 or below on the 100-point scale. I mean, a lot of times people will say, oh, we've never given below a 30. And I, my response to that is, so you're, you're basically not using your scale at all. Uh, and so I just simply don't partner with them. If if you give the, the case of the site that only gives between 7 and 9, or, or the equivalent of 70 to 90, we also wouldn't partner with them. Mm-hmm. You've got to show me that whatever scale you've picked, whether it's stars, numbers, letters, I, you know, ice cream cones, the teddy bears, whatever it is, you know, you've got to show me that you've had a history of using that scale. And if they don't, then obviously we, we can't use them. Um, and it's as simple as that. Now, getting more substantively, a lot of people will say, like, you know, a 7 at IGN can't be considered the same as a 7 from Edge, you know? Okay. Or, and, and, you know, that's, that, that's legitimate. 
But, you know, in, basically in all sort of scoring situations, you're going to have tough graders and you're going to have more lenient graders. You know, I had it in high school. You know, my, my sophomore English class, the, the teacher was, was a hard ass. You know, and uh, through college, through grad school, I've never had a tougher class. And that A- minus I got from him, I still just prize. Versus, in, you know, in college, my public administration class, if you got below an A, you're an idiot. But, you know, all these grades go into our transcript. They're all averaged together for our GPA. Mm -hmm. um, if you're in the workplace, you know, you might have two different bosses with, with people who are basically at the same level. One might be more lenient in terms of g giving a raise than another one. It's, this, this stuff's going to happen in life. But if their general scoring philosophy is sound and they're internally consistent, so for, so for example, if, if all of IGN's seven games are better than their six games, and if they have um, you know, basic, basic uh, uh, representative number of reviews, meaning like, you know, if, if Edge was a tough grader and they only reviewed one game a month, then whatever they reviewed, you know, they'd be screwing that game. That would be a problem. Right. But if they're reviewing the representative number of games and basically everybody's being exposed to their toughness, and with the easy graders, everybody's being exposed to their more lenient scoring. And, and again, assuming that they're both willing to use their full scales, I think it works out. I don't, I don't see it as a huge problem. So, so, Tom, I always go back to if they are not willing to you know, cover the, the, their own given scale, then I simply just won't, wouldn't pick them up. Right. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, is there... Uh if, if I'm not mistaken, isn't there also a, a weighting system that that is used at Metacritic that goes into the final number? Like, yeah. do, do, you, do you just put in all the numbers and then divide it by the number of numbers you've put in? Or that there is a weighting system, correct? Yeah, and, and that's not something that changes frequently. It's, it's certainly not game by game. It's, it's actually pretty rare. When I, when I pick up a site, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll assign a weighting to their, their, their body of critics. Um, and and then why, why do you do that? Basically, you know, we, we've thought from the very beginning of Metacritic that, you know, there, there are a hundred ways you can aggregate. And, and our thought was that, you know, we think that having a reputation for excellence, you know, you've got strong writing, strong critical analysis, you've been in the industry for years, you've played a million games, that person should get slightly more weight than someone who's really new to the industry or a site that uses freelancers, people who are just not as familiar with, with games uh, as this first publication. And it's, it's, it's not a huge thing. Like, for example, if you, if you were to take the Metascore and compare it to the sort of the unweighted simple average, it's, it's not a, a huge uh, number difference. So, so, like, for example, if you compare our scores to game rankings, and they have different critics, they don't weight, you know, it's always, it always comes in within a couple of points. So if it's not something that's radically different. We just think you just give slightly more weight, again, to those experts that have, that have really garnered that respect and that credibility. And, and again, not everybody has to do this. We think it's the best way to go about it. Is is that uh, is that waiting public, or is that hidden, or is that something that someone could reverse engineer and figure out? Uh, they, they probably could eventually reverse engineer it. I think somebody tried to do it last year at the uh, Game Developers Conference, and they, they failed miserably. <laughs> but but um, but yeah, but no. The idea is it's not public. We don't want. There's a theme of, of critic protection in my policies with Metacritic, and one, one of those uh, policies has to do with not changing scores, and I'm sure we'll probably get to that. But the other one is, like, wh why should we explain to people that, like, this particular publication is weighted slightly more than this other one so that, um, you know, stakeholders or PR people or whatever could target those people and, and put their emphasis on pressuring them to give higher scores versus the ones who aren't weighted as much or... 
to try to insult people who, who might not be rated as high as the other people. You know, the idea, again, is just that, you know, we think behind the scenes, if we can adjust, you know, the, the overall Metascore based on that particular expertise, then we want to do it. Do you get much flack for that? I mean, people bring it up, sure. But I, I don't think too many people dwell on it on okay. any kind of professional level. Uh, well, let's talk some about the publisher reactions, because that's been one of the, uh, I guess, surprising things for me personally. Since I, since I was listed on, on Metacritic, uh, early on when I, when I stopped freelancing and decided, you know, from now on, all my reviews I'm just going to do on quarter to three. I'm, I'm just going to create my own sort of body of work. This will be where the, the game coverage I do as far as critical reviews lives. All of it will be on quarter to three. Right. Uh, and I'd been, I'd been reviewing for like, like uh, 10, 15 years at that point. Um, so I thought, you know, I'll have no problem dealing with publishers. Uh, as a matter of fact, being on Metacritic will just help me with publishers. They'll, they'll know I'm part of the aggregates and presumably be willing to help me. Uh, right. I have found that actually the, the, the inverse is mostly true. Uh, <laughs> since I've been on Metacritic, uh, and I don't want to name names. I, I, I do want to name a couple names for a reason I'll explain in a minute. But since I've been on Metacritic, some of my experience has been I've been completely shut out from certain publishers, mm-hmm. and in thinking about it, I can kind of understand that. Because I use the full scale, because I, I think I'm willing to be more critical of of games that aren't traditionally spoken of critically, uh, I think it's in some publishers' best interest to not have me on Metacritic for as long as they can. So I've had some publishers completely refuse to deal with me. They don't answer my emails. They uh, will not return my calls. Uh, they'd been working with me for, for 10 years previously, and it's like a door slamming shut. Uh, and in a few instances, I've even had them say, well, it, it's your reviews. Even middling publishers, by the way, some of the big publishers. Right. But, but some names I do want to call out, by the way, are companies that do not do that. So I huge props to Activision, to Electronic Arts, and to Nintendo for even though I have been a colossal dick to some of their games, they have never once not gotten back to me on email, not given me review code when I've requested it. Uh, those three publishers in specific uh, have have uh, just a, a quick hat tip to them because I really appreciate the fact that I don't get the sense that they're trying to jigger their Metacritic score by excluding certain critics. Right. Um, so, so I do. I, I, in a way, I feel like that's fine. If you want to do that, I'm okay with buying my own copy of a game. You know, I understand that sometimes I'm going to do that. That's that's fine. Uh, but I can imagine you also must be on the receiving end of publishers badgering you to either include or not include certain things or to change certain scores. Uh, and that's got to be a whole different ball of wax than just some angry kid whose who's baby got insulted. Tell me about those kinds of things you have to deal with and, and how you deal with that. Okay, but before we get to that, Tom, hmm? what's funny is, you know, you're right. EA, Activision, Nintendo, they're, they're smart because if, if you were less professional than you really than you are, you know, by getting snubbed by these people, if you had to go out and buy the game, play the game, and if they're already sort of uncertain about the quality because they, they think that maybe you're going to give them a bad score because maybe the game isn't so hot, you know, uh, you might be even more uh, likely to give them a super low sure, score because sure. you did, did, did not get the game in, in advance. So, so I think the PR people or whoever it is that gives you the games at, at those three you know, big publishers are, are probably smart. Um, but no, you know what's funny is that in the first maybe three or four years of our existence, I, I did get some folks who would, uh, some publishers who would write to us and say, hey, you've got to use these guys or you can't use these people. Or, um, you know, recently I think there was a, there was a British site, God is a Geek, 
who uh, they gave a low or somewhat low score to um, MLB 14, the show. And I think somewhere in the review, the person obviously was not a huge baseball fan. So they didn't really understand the rules as much as the rest of us Americans. And so uh, I think a lot of people, uh, if this were 10 years ago, people would have come screaming to me, get them off the site. They, <laughs> they don't belong on the site. But, but really, I've not heard much of that of late. Okay. Um, I don't think publishers. I think part of it might be that my responses were always pretty, uh, pretty tough, you know. Um, and I would be able to explain to them why exactly I'm covering these people and, and give them more information than they ever knew about those publications and the critics that they use. Mm-hmm. So I think they, they felt a little bit silly arguing, basically point grubbing was what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just simply don't see that as much anymore. Um, but but I, I actually welcome it when um, someone who's like, for example, in charge of European territories, and they say, hey, there's this great, really well-established site in Portugal. You know, they've only been around for two or three years, but they have all these great critics from these other sites that you already cover. And, you know, I, I, I love that because that, that helps me with my research. And um, it, it maybe picks out a site that I should have been covering all along, uh, but, you know, but hadn't. So. I like that kind of thing, but but I don't get as much as of what you're talking about. I think one of the things also that's probably helped you over the years, uh, there's a there's kind of inflexibility with a rule I'm about to bring up, uh, and I can imagine it has headed off a lot of publisher complaints and potential publisher pressure, and the specific policy I'm talking about is that you don't allow scores to be changed, is that once a review score is posted, it sticks. Uh, and so there's none of the, there's no hectoring about, uh, you know, like if I post a two for something and then a publisher comes in <clears throat> and gets me to change it and they point out, oh, you didn't play this, go back and look at this feature. And oh, you didn't give us props for that. And I finally relent and I'm like, okay, 2.5. Uh, that doesn't trickle through to Metacritic, correct? Like your idea is that the right. initial posted score is inflexible. That's what sticks. That's what Metacritic is going to post. So therefore, right. even if a publisher bullies a, a publication, it's not going to have an effect on Metacritic, right? Yep. And, and you nailed the original policy reason for it. It was somewhere around 2003, 2004. In a matter of like six weeks, there were like four or five instances of major critics giving very average to below average scores for big games and within a day of that that review being posted boom it would be gone and they would have some kind of a meager explanation like well that that review didn't live up to our editorial standards Mm -hmm. we're going to take another look at this as a team and all of a sudden that c minus would become a b Mm -hmm. and and, um you know I i would find out later from what i would call whistleblowers that they were absolutely pressured by the stakeholders like hey you know you can live with that c minus and you could keep it but we're not going to work with you anymore. Maybe in the same way that they've sort of withheld stuff from you, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I, I said basically at that time, look, if, you, if you're the critic and you're the publication, you post the review when you feel comfortable, like, like when, when you are ready to do it. And once you come up with that score, it's going to stick. And so we're, we're backstopping these critics. And so then they're free to go ahead and pull down the reviews, raise the score, lower the score, do whatever you want. Metacritic's going to have the score of record. And that was your initial impulse. So that, that really has acted as, as a disincentive for these companies, definitely. Mm-hmm. Now, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, what, what I was going to say was, you know, that also sort of leads into, you know, other aspects of what's happened since then. Right. So in recent, in recent years, you know, obviously there's the Polygon example where, you know, they, they are now willing to change scores. And, and you know, we're, we're still sticking with the first score. And, and the idea is, 
is that, like with SimCity, for example, that was tested in a controlled environment, as far as I know. And, and once it got out in the wild, they had all sorts of problems. So they, they were forced to move their, I don't even remember what the score is now, maybe an 8 down to a 6 or a 5 or a 4 once it got out there. Then they moved it back up, and maybe they moved it back down again. And um, beyond just being kind of an administrative nightmare in, in handling that, it's, it seems like now uh, people with these evolving games like Elder Scrolls Online, they're willing to do a, a review in progress type of model where we're not exactly sure how this game is going to be at the moment of launch. Let's give it a week. Let's give it 10 days. Then let's put the score up, you know, and, and then we stick with that score. I think that's highly appropriate, and you know, a number of these critics have come to me saying, you know, if we did that, how would you react to it? And I said, we'll absolutely take your score whenever you want to do it. You're the critic. You know much more about this stuff than I do. You know, so you, you, you do it when you feel right about it. Um, and there's a couple other ideas I have, but I, I thought I'd let you jump in if you had any questions there. Well, I, I think that's one of the things also that people don't realize is that you're working with the people writing the reviews and publishing them. You're not you're not holding anybody's you're not you're not coming to any site and saying, at the moment you put up a number, that nope, too late, you took your hand off of it. It's like somebody moving a chess piece or something. No, you took your hand off, that's your move. You're you're being interactive with them and it is a process of of talking to them and working with them to decide when do we freeze your score. You know, when is uh, as an editor of mine used to put it, and I, I, I take this to heart, a review is a snapshot in time. It, it's, it's, it's your opinion of a specific point in time of a game, and it has to do with the state of the game and even the state of the reviewer. As much as people would like to think that reviews are objective and unbiased, uh, you, a review is an opinion, and the state of mind of the person giving the opinion, ideally he's professional enough it won't impact it hugely, but the state of the game, all of that exists at one particular point in time. And when you read a review, it's important maybe to note the date on the review. That's uh, exactly right. You know, and I, I tend to look at that snapshot in time as the release window. You know? Right, right. So, so you don't have to jump on 12.01 a.m. at the embargo to do your review. <laughs> You know, you might want to give it a day or two just to see how that multiplayer works out in, 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 the, in, the, in the real world. And, and we're going to wait for you. You know, I mean, w when we pick up a publication, we're going to cover all of their reviews. We're not we're not picking and choosing. I think a lot of people also mistake that. It's like it's not a discretionary based thing. It's like we, we are going to take all of your reviews um, because then the other the other subtopic here is a game that really gets better over time, like some kind of an MMO, like League of Legends, you know, like, I hear about that every now and then. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've always said that, like, maybe as an industry, they come up with some new model, like, re-release the game to the critics, like League of Legends year four, you know, and then have everybody sort of re-review the game in its current state, like, as a whole new product or as a new piece of entertainment. And I would be totally open to that kind of thing. But what, what I don't want to see is, you know, 80% of the critics reviewed it during that release window, and then one or two people are now reviewing it two years later when it's really good, and you're mixing apples and oranges there. And, 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 and sort of, you know, the idea that uh, we're all picking the release window as, as, the, as the, the main idea. Uh, you'd, be, you'd be departing on that on a selective basis, and I have a problem with that. Hey, Tom, one other thing. I, I was reading in, um, I think it was Game Informer yesterday, that, that Crytek is going to be shutting down multiplayer servers for Crisis and Crisis 2. Okay. And so what if, what if then some critic that gave that, I think the, the overall score for that game for Crisis 2 is 86. Huh? And what if somebody said, oh, wow, today there's no multiplayer for that game anymore, come, come May 31st. 
you know what? Oh, we're going to change our score. That's going to get a 30 now, you know? It's like, no, that's ridiculous, you know? <laughs> I mean, the, the, the game scored what it did during this release window. Subsequent changes or, like, sales on Steam, I mean, we, all, we all know that, that value comes into it in, in reviewing a game. So if you had to pay 70, 70 bucks for a game, you know, the expectations are much more than a, than a dollar iPhone game. Right, we, right. we all know that. So if, if you get a game that's been out for a couple of years and it used to cost 20 bucks and now it costs 99 cents on Steam, you know, you're not going to re-review that and say this is an incredible value, 100. You know, right. it's just ridiculous. So, I, so, so I think so you have to basically pick. You know your 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 area, and, and for us, it's it's basically that release window, launch window, right? I also feel that uh, part of that snapshot in time aspect, and this is true by the way of movies as well. If if you're going to talk about entertainment in in a larger context in relation to other forms of entertainment, games specifically, it kind of matters what else what else is out there oh. when a game is released. Yep. So if, if I were to, to write about uh, you know World of Warcraft when it was released, when there, it was really the state of the art in MMOs, that would be one thing. But now there are so many other games that do what World of Warcraft used to do, I feel better. You know, yeah. whereas I might have really liked World of Warcraft when it came out and given it, you know, five stars or whatever. These days, when instead there are, are there's competition that, that kind of outshines what World of Warcraft did well. Uh, yeah. It's important to know when you're talking about something, and therefore what else is available, what it's compared to. Yeah, uh, it's not just talking about it in a vacuum. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's an excellent point, Tom. I mean, there are other movie uh, aggregators out there, and there's a few of them. I won't even name names. But there are some that will, that will continue to add reviews to movies released in the 50s you know, <laughs> now. And it's just, for me, it's just crazy. Whereas, for us, if you look at our Godfather page, I can't remember who it was. It might have been Vincent Camby at the New York Times. He didn't care for it. But I'm sure if you assigned a, a critic at the New York Times now, it would be, a, oh, perfect 10, you know? <laughs> but we, we want to see, at the time, what, what, what was the general consensus. And we stick with that. But I've had bosses, you know, over the last 10 years who have suggested, like, this is an evolving product. We, we have to have evolve, evolving impressions of this. And, and I couldn't disagree more, but, hey, I'm just one dude. Right, right. <laughs> uh, another type of, of uh, situation on a raise where... I'm curious how you handle the policy of not changing scores. Let's say that there is, you mentioned the, the poor folks in Europe trying to write about baseball. You know, it's not really their, their wheelhouse. Uh, they maybe got some things wrong, but their heart was in the right place. Um, sometimes, maybe actual mistakes are made. Or maybe there is somebody not doing what they were supposed to do, an, an actual demonstrable failing of duty. And I want to give you an example that you and I dealt with. I don't want to name any names. But there, there was a, a publisher who was unhappy about a review I'd written, and they looked at my uh, Steam account and saw that I had never even installed the game. And so they went to you, and they were like, hey, Mark, uh, Tom didn't like this game, and we have here proof that he didn't even play it, <laughs> that right. he just invented everything he said, that he's never even tried our game. And, and you contacted me, and you're like, uh, you might want to talk to these people. And I think you even told them, well, talk to Tom about it and let me know what happens. And it just turns out they were looking at the wrong account. They were looking at the wrong Steam code. And I was able to show them, well, that's not the copy I played. Here's the copy I played. Here's my hours. And... You know, they didn't have a leg to stand on at that point. But I can imagine, um, has there ever been an instance, or do you have a contingency plan for an instance? What if some sort of malfeasance like that does come up, and there is a review there? Like, how do you react to that sort of thing, and has that been an issue? 
there, there, you know what? I'm going to speak broadly because I don't want to get into real specifics. But um, there's absolutely been um, unethical behavior by a publication and by individual critics. Um, and I have completely dropped the publication, in, including the review uh, in question. So that's happened. It hasn't happened a lot, but it will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we, we get that same complaint eh, maybe once every six months that like we, we have control over the account. We've seen that they haven't played it enough. And I, I will always go back to that critic, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the way, Tom, there, there are also a couple other instances. Like for example, if someone puts up a review score, uh, like a, it's a two, when they, they have rave things to say about it in, in the, the text of the review, obviously it was a keystroke problem. They oh, fix, right. <laughs> I fix it, you know. Right. Or they they simply reviewed the wrong game. You know, uh, they were supposed to be reviewing GTA 4, they reviewed GTA 3, you know, <laughs> then, then we change it, you know, sure. but there have been those situations where, you know, all they said in the review, it cost $22 and it was actually, cost, it cost 20 bucks. And so therefore <laughs> we demanded they change the score and I just don't simply don't think that right. kind of thing is enough, you right. know? And so, and again, by, by keeping the bright line rule there, um, then you don't have people trying to drive a th- truck through the exceptions of the policy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I like that fact. Uh, one of the other issues that I imagine you might, if you're not struggling with it now, I think you're going to be in the near future. Uh, Polygon just posted a review for a game called Starbound that's still in, it's either alpha or beta. It, it's one of these early access things on Steam. And Polygon is like, well, they're selling it, so we're going to go ahead and publish a review. And I presume, I haven't seen it, but I presume they gave it a score. Um, games are increasingly opting for early access. Like, ah, we're not out yet. You know, this is a beta. You can you can buy it and, and get a look at an early build, and we'll go to version 1.0 Maybe soon, maybe later, maybe never. You, you don't know. Uh, how do you deal with that sort of thing and the policy of we're going to to have the score reflect the launch window? As launch windows become increasingly imprecise things, how are you dealing with that? Yeah, you know, th- this is a tough one. And we really uh, came up with our policy maybe six months ago. And I talked to, again, this team of advisors that I, that I go to. And what we finally came up with was it's fair to have reviews and review scores and aggregated scores for the finished game. You know, if they're working on it, you know, it just seems unfair to be, to use those scores. So luckily, you know, Eurogamer, a number of sites have these early access reviews and PC gamer and the rest, and they don't have scores on them. Um, Polygon actually contacted me and said, Hey, we're actually going to try this and we're going to put up a score because we can change scores. Um, but we would actually prefer you not list that on their page. And I said, absolutely, because it, it goes with our philosophy now that we, we, we're, we're concerned with finished games. And, and again, you know, there, there are games that will be that 1.0 that, that need patches and all the rest of this stuff. That's when, again, I revert to the critic. And, and it, when they feel it's time to review a game when it's ready to, to be reviewed, then we'll go ahead and use their scores and we'll put it on our, our page. But as a general proposition, um, we, we switched from hey, this is for sale, it should be reviewed, but we're going to use those scores to, hey, let, let's get it out of beta, let's let's make it the final product, and then we'll go ahead and add the scores. So, I mean, back to the whole idea that there's a hundred ways you can aggregate, and there's certainly legitimate you know, people that are, are suggesting that they should be reviewed. We're, we're just going with finished products. Mm-hmm. Does that incentivize then for some developers sort of lingering in a, a semi-perpetual beta state for a while because then they're immune to a, a, a daisy, for, not daisy, there was some uh, imitator of 
that Daisy zombie mod for uh, for Arma. At any rate, there was some really crappy. I think it was yeah. a free to play War Z, maybe. Um, I think they changed the name to Infestation or something or other. They definitely they changed the name. They were having this whole issue where they they got a bad rap for being an early release. They changed the name. Uh, but but basically, I'm wondering if you're maybe helping to incentivize some publishers to say, yeah, this is a beta, uh, to therefore get out from under having a Metacritic average. I, I guess that that can happen. I, I haven't really seen the ill effects of that yet. Um, but I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's beyond sort of Metacritic and scores and reviews and stuff. The idea that they're charging for these early glimpses of these games is really interesting. And, and I, I wonder if the gaming you know, public at large will continue to, to buy that stuff, you know? Um, maybe they're going to demand that it has to be further along before they'll buy that those things, and, and maybe maybe there are specialized reviews of just those early access games that might be interesting. Mm-hmm. But for us to you know put that into our system just seems like apples and oranges. Sure. Uh, so um, how do you? So one of the things that I hear a lot when I'll write a negative review, uh, and and this is one of the instances where I feel like it's kind of uh, it kind of needs to be thrown over to you rather than brought this being brought up to me is sometimes i'll write a negative review and people will say hey you're uh you're you're taking food from the mouths of developers because metacritic scores are used to determine bonuses or they're used in in discussing whether or not a a company will will work with a particular a publisher will work with a developer or whether or not somebody can find a job because you get asked at your job What's the Metacritic average of your games? So you, Tom Chick, you are, are making it hard for these developers to feed their families. Um, so, so I'm curious, Mark, how do you feel about Metacritic averages supposedly uh, impacting business decisions, like bonuses and hiring decisions and, and whatnot? Uh, I get this stuff thrown at me a, a fair amount of time, and I feel like, well, you know what? You need to talk to the, the publishers who make those decisions or, or even talk to Metacritic about that. Right. Uh, how do you feel about that particular and I don't even know if it's a canard. I don't know how widespread it is. I've certainly had developers tell me that it's an issue. Um, but how do you feel about that sort of thing? Yeah, what's interesting is, you know, I've obviously read the same stuff that you have, and um, we simply don't have anything to do with it. You know, you would think that if people had clauses and contracts or bonuses or this or that, they would actually contact us to, to, to understand how the system works, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, to put it in, in, a, in a contract worth whatever millions of dollars. But no, I mean... Again, I always have to go back to Metacritic as a tool for one thing. You know, how how can a gamer make the best use of his time and money? You know, yeah. that's simply it. And then there's the, the role of criticism in general. I mean, from the, you know, back to Shakespeare's time, you know, I mean, theater critics, you know, London's West End, when they slam a show, I'm sure that hurts the playwright. I'm sure it hurts the the actors, you know, but those guys are, are unrelenting. And you go to New York on these Broadway shows. I mean, you get really good reviews. That thing might last two years. You get negative reviews. It might not might, might not last for two or three weeks. So the fact that we're simply, you know, giving you a snapshot of the consensus review for a particular product, you know, it's just something that's always been done. And if if somebody's going to put it in a contract, you know, we we have nothing to do with it. Yeah. So it's it's, it's hard to even get too specific because I've never even seen one of these things. Uh, the tool metaphor for me, Mark, is the is the most valuable because it, it as a tool, you know, if you if you pick up a hammer, you can use it to build a house, but it's not the fault of the guy who made the hammer if you take that hammer and start whacking people on the head with it. Uh, right. it, it really is, uh, you know, it is a tool, and there's a certain 
you, there's a there's a limit to the responsibility you have for how people use that tool. I, I sort right. of feel. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Jim Sterling in one of his videos said something like, "It's a handy repository of a variety of reviews. If you want to just leave it at that, you know, ignore, ignore the score. It works for you. You know, we don't have any other agenda than educating users. And so, um, somebody at some of these studios, I guess, thought we were doing some effective job and sort of. Um, uh, capturing quality, you know, and hey, that's 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 a compliment. But you know, if you're going to be using it as a sword or a shield or whatever in these contracts, you know, I, I've just simply never seen them, and so I, I can't even pretend to comment on it in any kind of substantive way. Sure, sure. Uh, why are games divided by platform and movies aren't divided by, for instance, whether or not it was the IMAX version or the 3D version or the standard or the high definition version? Uh, why doesn't uh, why, why doesn't a game just get released as one entertainment product and then let each review discuss the, the differences amongst the various platforms? That's a good question. And, you know, you, you bring up movies. Hmm? And, you know, I think it would be important just from a disclosure level. Like if someone saw Gravity, hmm? to let people know, I saw this in IMAX or I saw it in 3D. You know, I saw it in a regular theater without either one of those things. Hmm? I saw it on the screener on my laptop. I saw it on my iPhone. Radically different experiences, right? Hmm? And it'll be interesting to know. But for games, you can go a step further. I mean, there's a level of interaction with these things. And there's control in games. And the, the problem is, is that with all these different platforms, the methods of controlling that game are often radically different. So you get something like the PC with a keyboard mouse controls, arguably better graphics. You know, the Wii U versus the other main consoles, you know, specialized unique control scheme. You know, the 3DS versus a Vita, I mean, you have two screens with two very different functions, you know, versus one big screen on the Vita. Um, I, I remember recently re reviewing or, or reading reviews for Dead Nation, and they, were, they would consistently cite stuff like inaccurate controls on the Vita versus a PS3. So the idea that you would throw all of these reviews into one big pile, it's not as, for me, transparent and, as, and effective. But, but actually, let, let me just track back a little bit, because... You know, four or five years ago, I would do that. So I would take a review from a given site, and they would simply mention, you know, it's available on these seven platforms. Mm -hmm. And I would apply that to all those platforms. So we had a lot more reviews. You know, we, there was a time where you could see like 110, 120 reviews for a given game. Um, but then, you know, who started to really revolt was the PC gamer community. Because they would come to their PC page for a given game and they'd say, you know what? 80% of these reviews, the, the critic reviewed it on a console. You know, where are our PC reviews? Mm -hmm. And they made a great point. So starting then, if, if a review was going to hit the PC page on Metacritic, it had to be tested on a PC. And then I slowly started evolving that and basically asked the critics I tracked, uh, and we cover about 140, please tell me the primary version that you tested of this. And I, de I define that as the version that you were playing when you gained your essential impression of the game. So yes, we, we assume that people maybe get two or three different versions, they play one all the way through, then they drop in the other versions just, versions just to dabble, to be able to say, oh yeah, it controls a little bit differently. But you know, we, we think that these games can be different enough. Um, and again, just a couple more examples that like, I remember uh, hearing about with Skyrim, you know, that there was some, some huge bug on the PS3 version. Or for shooters on the original Xbox, they played better than the PS2 versions of these shooters. So, so I think that, that, again, control schemes and just the way they play out are different enough where if we can have uh, you know, the individualized treatment of those games, I think it's valuable. And, and even technical issues, Mark. Like I, uh, 
uh, I don't think this was on any of the aggregates, but way back when there was um, uh, Fallout New Vegas is a game that Obsidian did, and they yep. did it for multiple platforms. Uh, I reviewed for a, a small site uh, the Xbox 360 version, uh, and it was on the, the PS three as well there was a pc version um i ran into some horrible bug and bethesda even tried to help me to no avail track it down on the xbox 360 and was unable to get past a certain version a certain point in the game i was basically locked down and short of starting over you know i, I lost 20 hours of time and i spent another 10 trying to troubleshoot it wow and in the end i just wrote the review of that experience and it was hugely frustrating. I, I liked a lot of what the game was doing, but I ended up writing a review of a very specific technical experience on a very specific platform. Uh, and I felt that that was important to people who were maybe going to pick it up on a 360. It was important for them to know, and that was a relevant experience, what I was writing in that review. Whereas for the PC version or the PS3 version, that arguably whatever technical thing I'd run into was superfluous. Like that's not something they would have to deal with. Yeah. Um, so, so even technical issues, I, I sort of think like when, when I ask you this question, my initial response is, you know, a game should be like a movie and we shouldn't care about what platform it's on. But the reality of the technology we use to play games is that we're not there yet. You know? Right. No, I, I agree. So, so do you generally agree with our policy? Yeah. Yeah. Like I find myself, uh, so much of what I do as a game critic is I just want games to be treated like other entertainment. Yeah. But I do have to acknowledge there there are ways that that's just not possible yet. And one of the ways is the impact of a platform on a game. Uh, you know, there's there's really no analog to that in movies. It's not like saying, "Did you see this in 3D? Did you have Atmos sound?" You know, those little incidentals. That's closer to saying, you know, was your PC powerful enough to turn on anti-aliasing? You know, yep. when you played this game. Uh, th so there's really no analog in other entertainment for the current situation with how video games are split up amongst different platforms and sometimes made entirely different products on different platforms, even though they have the same name. Right, uh, absolutely. So, yeah, I absolutely agree with the policy, but I hate that it has to exist at this point. I, I do, too. And, and uh, you always see in these um, magazines and maybe on these online articles the, the idea that one day there will be the single console and then everybody will be you know, programming for that single console. And that would be great. You know, it seems like that would be a neat solution. I don't know if supply and demand economics, the market, will ever allow for that. Right, right. But, but that would be a neat thing. Uh, let me ask you about uh, your, your own you, – so, so when I go to Metacritic and I see that, that Metacritic average, if my eyes move a little bit more to the right, I see user ratings. Uh, user ratings, um, I imagine that's got to be – so actually, maybe that's not a headache. Maybe that for you is just a huge hands-off thing. Anybody can go in there and put in whatever they want. If everybody's mad at EA for being the worst company in America, they can give every EA game a one if they want. Um, what is the opinion on user ratings, and why is that featured relatively prominently up there right next to the actual Metacritic score? You know, it's, it's, it's more prominent now than it was around 2010 during our, our redesign. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we had pulled and talked to a lot of gamers, and it's, it's surprising how many of them thought differently than I think, that whereas I trust the body of expert critics more than I do just the average gamer off the street. But we, if you talk to a lot of people... They tend to go the exact opposite way. Uh -huh. yep. They'll say, you know, critics are bought and paid for. 
you know, I, I listen to the gamers much more. They should just get rid of the meta score and only have the user score. And believe me, there's plenty of people that go the exact opposite way, too. But at the end of the day, it was sort of like, you know, if some people want that user score and they want to see some users, and obviously we do our best to, to knock out, we, we moderate out the ridiculous reviews. Oh, you do? And, so there is some, uh, like, there's some moderation of the user score. Yeah, and most of it's just terms of use violations. Like, if they're flaming or they're calling out other people or being ridiculous, you know, those okay. just get knocked out. Okay. Um, but as long as they have some legitimate basis of review, you know, we, we've got to leave it up. Mm-hmm. And uh, and will people use tens and zeros more often than they should? Absolutely. You know, I think the idea is they want to move that user right. average. You know, and they, they, what's what's the best way to move something? Yeah, of course I'd probably give it a six or seven. <laughs> but I like this game. I want to move the average. Let's give it the old ten. And that's human nature. It happens on Amazon and every other possible you know user review system falls prey to this kind of thing. Right. Um, and then of course there are days like what was the game? Dota two. Holy moly when they didn't have their Halloween update, and they just blitzed our page. and um, Showing up, like, giving it zeros because they're angry? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know? And then there was this whole counter-revolution of people giving nothing but tens to try to raise that average back up. So there were thousands and thousands of reviews and just battling. And, of course, my poor moderators are sitting there just knocking these things out one by one by one, and uh, it was just a mess. But... I, I think having the option, I think I think we're all mature enough as Internet users to say, you know what, I have more faith in that meta score. I'm going to look that way versus, you know, the, the user score or exactly the opposite. You know, I think the critics are bought and paid for. So I'm going to stick with this user score, even if people vote you know, ones versus zeros or tens versus zeros. You know, eventually that sort of comes to a point where I think it's believable. Then, hey, you know, freedom of choice. Do what you will. Uh, so, so going forward in, in the future in Metacritic, you mentioned uh, you, you research critics. I think you said there's about 140 on there now, uh, specifically for games, I presume. Uh, how often do you have people approaching you to get listed? Uh, what is the process? What if there's someone listening right now who is running a small site and they really want to be a part of Metacritic at some point in the future? Well, what is your advice? How does someone proceed with that? Okay, yeah, so I hear from people every day. Mm-hmm. In games, usually multiple times a day. And so what I do is generally do a end-of-the-year evaluation process. So I usually direct people, hey, contact me around mid-December. I will then give them the updated version of my questionnaire, which is basically background of your operation, how long you've been in business, tell me about your writing staff, all that kind of stuff that we talked about before. Mm-hmm. And then they get it back to me, and over the course of the next two or three months, I just take a really close look at all these people. And um, and then if I'm lucky, you know, I do get, you know, five or ten good ones that I'm willing to um, throw into our system that will replace just a natural fallout. So, you know, when GamePro went dead or Nintendo Power died, you know, I just need new up-and-coming good critics to, to fill in. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I just love it when we get – I'm looking for experts, you know, people who have been doing it for a while. Maybe they, they went from a prestigious publication and now they're doing it on their own. And, um, you know, they're looking for a new staff that's going to do it maybe a different way or anything that's just really, you know, proven and tested. They have a growing audience. Um, And, um, you know, the writing is critical, you know. So if I'm seeing just a bunch of reviews, bunch of scores, and I actually read the text and they can't put two sentences together, (laughs) that doesn't work, you know. Mm -hmm. So... So, yeah, so basically, if, you know, if they want to get, get involved, you know, the idea is hit, hit me up in middle of December and we'll get rolling. Great. Okay. Uh, well, Mark, I really appreciate you talking uh, the aggregates with me. It's uh, been a huge part of 
my sort of journey as a as a guy running his own site in in the last few years. I know that uh, uh, times it's been a headache for you. Times it's been a headache for me. But I I, I love the aggregates as a concept. Uh, I really like. Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic and game rankings just as, as a guy who follows the industry follows the critical conversation I love what you guys are doing uh, and even though like I've said you know, it's a tool and even though I think the tool gets used poorly sometimes uh, I approve of the tool and I'm, a, I'm just a huge fan of, of what's going on over there at Metacritic so I appreciate you talking with me about that yeah, I'm definitely a fan of what you guys are doing not only in your game reviews but on your, uh, your podcasts, I'm a loyal uh, quarter to three movie podcast listener. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because before I let you go, Mark Doyle, I so oddly enough, I think of you more as kind of like one of my... You and I have talked before. Uh, when I first approached you, I, I just knew what Metacritic was. I'd heard your name before. Someone in PR once told me when I was starting... Uh, to do all my reviews at quarter to three, she said, "You know what? You should you should see about getting listed on Metacritic." And I was like, "Oh no, they, that's that's too big time for me. They wouldn't have me." And what I was told by more than one person is, "You know what? Mark Mark Doyle's really personable. He's totally approachable. Just, just talk to him. He's this great, friendly guy." Uh, I mean, I pictured surely the the Mark Doyle at Metacritic is a is a guy in a suit, and he's like a a relentless bean counter type, and he's hardcore. <laughs> business uh but what i constantly heard about mark doyle was oh no he's great he's super approachable uh and that was my experience and uh i you know when you and i first talked you were very encouraging and it was it was uh it was great to get to talk to you but since then i kind of come to think of you more as like a a movie dork buddy uh so while i've got you here uh, and listeners, I know this is the Quarter to Three Games podcast, but you're just going to have to suck it up and listen to a couple of movie dorks talk for a moment. Uh, because, Mark, I want to do some movie dork talk with you right now. Let's do it. All right. What I asked you uh, before we, we recorded, uh, I would be curious if you were to think back the last few months, what are what are a few movies that have just really hit you? Uh, presumably good movies, but maybe something you really hated. What are some movies recently that you've seen that you've had a strong reaction to? How about okay. if I put it that way? Yeah, there's a few. It, obviously, this time of year is not the best time of year for movies, as we all know. Right? I, I do. It, it is kind of funny how uh, movies have this. Like I, I'm here living in LA where we don't have seasons with weather. I think more of seasons as like what types of movies are being released. It's yeah. sort of like the the release, the the types of movies that are out mark seasons in LA far more than weather for me. De- definitely, January through March is particularly brutal. You yeah. know. Yeah. Um, okay, so. I saw this Jonathan Glazer movie called... Oh, no, you can't talk about this because I don't know anything about it. Okay, uh, yeah. We, we oh, shouldn't uh, talk about it then. But I'll just, I'll just say this, and this won't spoil about. anything. Um, you know, director who did Sexy Beast, Scarlett Johansson. Uh, I saw and it... Like, birth. Like, Birth, I think, is a... I love Sexy Beast, but Birth was yes. hugely important to me. I loved... I think of Jonathan Glazer as the Birth guy before I think of him as the Sexy Beast guy. I had not seen Birth, so I, I couldn't identify with that one, but... Have you not... You have not seen Birth? No. Is it excellent? Well, now that you've seen... It's called Under Her Skin, right? The one that yeah. you're about to... Yeah, now that you've seen this, you, you totally have to see Birth. Birth is... Uh, I think you were the one that told me, and maybe this is what you're about to say, that, that people got up and walked out of Under <laughs> Her Skin. I love hearing that about a movie, by the way. But, yeah. but Birth, totally the same kind of movie. Like, I didn't see it in a theater, but I can imagine there would be people walking out of that in droves. Furthermore, there would be people afterwards talking about how they had no idea what was going on or it confused them. Yes. But you totally have to see Birth. Because yeah. you know, there's a difference between seeing a movie at, like, the Landmark or 
uh, an art house theater versus like AMC, and that it was playing at AMC. <laughs> People saw like Scarlett Johansson. Hey, great! What is this? Maybe aliens? Who knows? And so, you know, ten minutes in, four people walk out. You know, five minutes later, ten people walk out. And so it was pretty unreal. But yeah, that's I, I like movies that challenge that aren't like anything else. You know, and maybe you don't understand the whole thing, but you're just engaged, and it's just cool. And and that that's that's one of those. So definitely see it. Okay, so I want to I want to go back and forth with you a little bit. I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm dying to see it. You absolutely have to see Birth, but you're making me think of a movie I just saw last night, which I'm kind of gobsmacked by it in that same sense of I'm not sure what was going on, but I'm a little blown away. Uh, did you see the guy who did Prisoners? He's a Canadian director named I think it's Dennis Villanueva. I might be screwing up his name. Mm-hmm. But he did that movie Prisoners with uh, Hugh Jackman and yeah, I saw that. Loved a bunch it. of other people. You did? Because I hated Prisoners. Oh, oh, you did? Yeah. I did. But, Tom, one thing is that you and I will disagree on many movies. Which is awesome, by the way. It is awesome. I'd, I'd, I'd rather have a conversation with someone I disagree with. So the movie podcast that I do that you're kind enough to mention, our biggest problem is that we have similar taste. I love talking to people who have different tastes. So uh, I, I really didn't like Prisoners, which is why it surprised me how blown away I was by Dennis Villanueva's latest movie, which is with Jake Gyllenhaal also, called Enemy. Do you know anything about this? I saw Enemy. What did you think of Enemy? Because I, yeah, think, I think, I'm not sure, but Mark, I think I loved it. Yeah, no, I did too. I, I loved it, and uh, that, that last frame, which obviously... Oh my god! About, no kidding! One of the most horrifying things I've ever seen. So... Uh, yeah, yes. just the whole sickly feel of, uh, of Toronto, you know, the way that he filmed that. I don't know how he did it. Well, the, it was it was definitely the way he shot it, the cinematography, the score was a huge part of it. But just the, that movie, Unspooled, sickly is the perfect word for it. I mean, just everything is so ill at ease, but it looks mundane. Um, and, and what it accomplishes, and I don't want to spoil anything, I, I, I love how it shows... This evolving use of, of CG, you know, what it accomplishes with very tasteful use of CG to put you ill at ease uh, was, was just masterful, I, I thought. Um, it was. Did you uh, see any points of commonality with, with Prisoners? Uh, maybe maybe the look and, look and feel, kind of, because Prisoners was also very dreary, you know, Yeah, yeah. but 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 very much a different movie. I think Gyllenhaal was, was great in both. I mean, you might disagree with me on Prisoners, but um, I, I think he's someone who's really sort of carrying the torch for that generation. Well, it, it definitely, Enemy made me appreciate, I mean, he's fascinating in Prisoners, I'll certainly grant you that. It didn't really work for me, but he's mm-hmm. so watchable, I couldn't take my eyes off of him. In, yep. in Enemy, it really does... Uh, solidify for me something that I lose sight of and that is that Jake Gyllenhaal has a lot of range that he doesn't get to play with a lot and and Enemy really lets him do that well, you know it makes me think oh yeah this is the guy who was working opposite Heath Ledger and Brokeback Mountain right. doing some Darko. really powerful stuff Donnie Darko there, yeah. there are mirror scenes in Enemy where I was like oh yeah Donnie Darko yeah absolutely Mark absolutely yeah. All right, okay, what's another one you've seen that's really hit you? Another one that I liked recently was Only Lovers Left Alive. <gasps> that gummit, another one I need to see. All right, so Jim Jarmusch, can yes. be hit or miss, that was hit for you? Yep, I, I, love, I love that. I love Broken Flowers, and again, I know that's not like the big Jarmusch type of movie. I, no, that. I haven't seen Broken Flowers. Sell that to me. Make me want yeah. to see it. Yeah, <laughs> um, Bill Murray is awesome in it. Uh, Jeffrey Wright, outstanding, and Jeffrey Wright's also in Only Lovers Left Alive. Um and it's just, you know, it's kind of a road movie, great soundtrack. It, it, you know, the, the casual, sort of easy feel of Jarmusch movies resonates with me. 
I think you you know what you had me at Jeffrey Wright. That that'll do it. That's, that's, that's enough. Okay. Uh, did you see a movie called A Single Shot from last year with Sam Rockwell? I don't think. No, I didn't. I didn't see that one. Uh, it, uh, an absolutely devastating Jeffrey Wright appearance. Uh, so I recommend A Single Shot. By the and yeah, if you can like things like Under Her Skin, Only Lovers Left Alive, Enemy, you definitely should see A Single Shot. Okay. Yeah, I, I, just, I, I just wrote it down. Uh, so Only Lovers Left Alive. Uh, what Jarmusch movie would you compare it to, or would you? I probably haven't seen enough of them to even comment. Okay. See, Tom, first of all, you, you are better with films than I am. I will see a lot of them, but I won't remember directors and writers and stuff. <laughs> like, no, seriously, we, we've talked about this before. And, and part of it is because I've got the whole sports world and music and TV, all that stuff, clouding my brain. Right. So um, so I, I don't know. But Hiddleston and, and uh, Tilda Swinton were perfect, perfectly cast mm-hmm. as these you know centuries-old vampires who are... Again, I won't spoil it for you, but okay. they're just cool. They're, they're not the kind of vampires who are out there biting people and doing crazy stuff. Um, I have so... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and the whole, you know, sort of outskirts of Detroit and the Tangiers sort of settings are, are, are really perfect. What were you going to say? I just have so little frame of reference for Tom Hiddleston outside of him being Loki, and right. I love him being Loki, and I know he's done um, other movies, but I don't... I either haven't seen them or he didn't register for me, but I really am ready to see that guy doing more stuff. And that, more than it being a Jim Jarmusch movie, more than it being a different take on vampires, that's why I'm most eager to see Only Lovers Left Alive. Yeah, you like it. Okay, good. Uh, Let's see if one of these corresponds to... All right, so here's a weird one I saw. Um, Do you know who Juno Temple is? Yes, I like her. I do too, and she's so weird and different, and she's she just has this odd energy about her. Uh, she was in a movie called Afternoon Delight, um, directed by a woman named Jill Soloway, uh, and, and starring an actress I've seen in little comedic parts. The actress's name is, is Catherine Hahn. How do you know she's awesome? Because I had no idea until I saw... I knew that she could be funny, um, but until I saw Afternoon Delight, I don't think I knew that she was awesome. Yeah, you know, it, she she always seems to steal scenes from stuff that I've seen. What was that one where the um the, the funny guys go down to Florida? They li- they live in a nudist colony. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> uh, I can't even remember the name anymore. But anyway, she has the small parts and she does well in them. And, and so having a movie with her was great. It, incidentally, I saw this. I saw a matinee at the Landmark here in L.A. And like four rows in front of me was Quentin Tarantino. Afternoon delight. <laughs> See after it's awesome. Yeah, and he was roaring in this movie, you know. So I don't know how much you liked it, but he loved it, and uh, I, I thought it was good. But Juno Temple, yeah, she she always she's great. You know, I, I think she was perfect in that role. She was perfect, and the thing is, she didn't like a lot. Uh, I've seen her sort of anchoring certain movies, or or where her role, like in in uh, Killer Joe, like it's it's a huge part of of what's going on and the mood and the tone. And she's kind of uh, she's a catalyst in Afternoon Delight, uh, and she certainly drives the events. But I never got the sense that the, the movie was still so strongly focused on Catherine Hahn and on her performance and her as a character uh, that Juno Temple was almost like a, a nice bit of garnish, kind of, uh, in that movie. Um, yeah. But I, I was really surprised at how much I liked that as well. Um, and I liked how it was this kind of subversive take on the idea that the the sexually empowered woman is is superior and is going to teach the repressed woman life lessons and how to be free and open and how it had this kind of 
conventional family values message in the end. Like, you know what? Uh, make your marriage work. <laughs> you know, that was kind of the point of it, rather right. than be sexually liberated and free. And uh, yeah, and I just, I, I really liked her in this because I, I think I'd last seen her in a horrible movie called We're the Millers, where yeah. she just did a, a, a clown part, a little clown cameo. So. Right, and that—that's the thing too. Yeah, with Han as well. It's like yeah. it, she's too too much the fool or the clown, you know. In this movie, she had she had to show range, and, it, yep. and she, she was good. And also very uh, self-deprecating in a way. Like there were scenes where I was kind of embarrassed for her. Yeah. Uh, and I always admire when an actress can do that. Uh, so here's my theory about Afternoon Delight. Um, Bridesmaids cleared the way for for movies like this. Like I think that Bridesmaids. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I get the sense that after Bridesmaids, people thought, let's let a female comic do the equivalent of what Adam Sandler sometimes tries to do. And, and namely, sort of be serious, carry a movie, uh, not make it just sort of uh, all jokey. Like, let, let's tell stories about women and let's let comedic women do non-comedic parts. Right. Uh, yeah. No, ab- absolutely. You know, it's funny. I, I always kind of compare... The Hangover, the first one, uh-huh. to Bridesmaids. You know, Bridesmaids is the girls' version of Hangover. Uh-huh. And, you know, I probably saw Hangover once and saw Bridesmaids like three or four times. Yeah, yeah. Because, because it was that much more to it than just the laughs and the gags, you know? And, uh, yeah, uh, it's great that, the, that, they, that they did that movie. That and I, I don't think Hangover ever tried to be as heartfelt as Bridesmaids ultimately was. No. Like, Hangover was just a bunch of dudes, you know, fucking around having a laugh. Uh, right. And that was fine, but uh, it didn't have the kind of the heart and soul that Bridesmaids did, I think. Yep. Yeah. All right, what's something else you've seen that you liked? Well, well, one that I'll just mention, and you know that I've seen this, was, uh, remember last year, Upstream Color? Yeah, oh yeah. So, so I've now seen that three or four times, saw the director talk about it. It's just so neat that he, and I still, have, by the way, have not seen his first movie. I have it in my Netflix queue. Primer. Right. But, I, I um, kind of feel like just skip, I mean, watch it at some point, but there's, yeah, Upstream Color is, uh, yeah, pr- Primer, you, you've gone the wrong direction, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. And, and, and actually, your, your comment, you know, uh, along those lines has been a disincentive to me actually sitting down to watch it. But anyway... Uh, he came to speak to this local theater here, and he's such. A, he sort of hammered home that he's such an outsider to the whole Hollywood industry and everything, and the way he learned how to do all the stuff that he filmed, and it was like a DIY project, you know. Uh-huh. And it was just refreshing seeing someone, you know, with totally fresh eyes, do it his or her own way, you know. And it paid off because I, I loved it. Again, can't say that I understand 100% of that movie, but it was awesome. I, I can imagine. I've only seen it twice, and it was very. It was this. I'll almost never do this. Like, I watched it, and then I immediately watched it again. But yep. I can imagine it's the sort of thing that if you wait for a few months and you see it again, it's it's probably just as rich. Like, there's got to be this kind of richness to it, rediscovering it several months later. Yeah, and, and you and I both love the lead, uh, the, the actress in that movie. God, no kidding. Yeah. Did did you see Your Next? That, that was That's also on my list. I love Your Next. I was bummed that she wasn't in it as long as I thought she would be. <laughs> well, I kind of feel like that that's... Almost this intentional, uh, I, I, the, the fact that, that they have an actress like that who you'll probably recognize, if you go to see Your Next, directed by Adam Wingard, you've probably seen his other movies, you've probably seen her in A Horrible Way to Die, you've probably, you know, maybe you've seen Upstream Color. I think there's this expectation management, like, let's show you this familiar actress and then manipulate or even a familiar actor, and then manipulate your expectations by not making this the lead throughout the movie. Yeah. Uh, and your next is so skillful at that. Uh, it, yeah. it is. 
And that, that's, it's kind of a joyful horror movie, too, if you can put it that way. You know, I, I smiled as I left the theater, you know. Oh, it, it's it, that one of the miracles of your next is how it starts out just being really horrifying and dark and depressing. And, oh, this is terrible. Why am I watching this? To just, like you say, being joyful. Yeah. I mean, I I can't help but giggle at the end of that movie. Yeah. Uh, and it, it's a weird journey because a lot of horror movies can't go through that tonal shift very well. They, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I like that a lot. Um uh, did you see, by any chance, uh, a little indie thing with a fellow named Pat Healy called Cheap Thrills? No, I didn't see Cheap Thrills. What's that all about? So Cheap Thrills, uh, okay, definitely commits to, it, it's kind of almost the inverse of Your Next, in terms of it starts out uh, somewhat whimsical, and it gets really grim. There aren't many people I would necessarily recommend this to, but it's just about um, these these two buddies who run into some people at a bar who they don't know you know they just are invited over for a drink um and it's sort of a four-person almost a play where the the one of the people at the bar has a lot of money and he starts saying things like you know what i'll give you ten dollars if you go over there and smack that waitress on the butt Uh, and he starts daring them to do little things like this and it escalates and it becomes this very dark comedy slash kind of horror movie and Probably along the not not as powerful as Enemy, but it has a last shot that is inc- that is just so arresting. The way it is lit, the image, you know how you get to that last shot, the last frame of cheap thrills, uh, makes all that grimness and all that ooginess of sitting through what happens worthwhile. Okay, I'm sold. Yeah. Do you, do you know who Pat Healy is, by the way? No, no. So he's been. You'll probably recognize him. He's been in a million things. Uh, and he's he's the lead in Cheap Thrills. The four actors in Cheap Thrills, by the way, it's an ensemble piece, all very good. Um, two of the four actors I have previously hated, and I loved them in Cheap Thrills. One is a woman named Sarah Paxton, uh, and the other is a comic named David Koechner, who you've seen in a million things. Yeah, I don't necessarily care for either one of them, but they were amazing in Cheap Thrills. Okay. So, there you go. I'm ready for it. All right, give me one more. Okay, well, I'll, let me just mention three okay, that, that I thought were, were good. So I saw a documentary called Particle Fever. <laughs> have, have you heard of this? No. Okay, do you know my thing? Documentaries are not movies, Mark. Okay, hey, that's, <laughs> that's, that's legitimate, you know? No. I, it's sort of like for movies, I look for a different kind of experience. And documentaries, because they're real, like it, it just feels weird to me. So uh, Particle Fever, I'm going to guess what it's about. Okay. It's about particle physicists? It is. It's about this super collider in Switzerland that it took 20 years to build this thing. And they essentially wanted to prove one very small thing, whether this particular particle weighed a certain amount. If it, okay. if it weighed more than a certain amount, then everything we thought about the world of physics is, is safe. If it weighed less than we thought, then all of a sudden we could be in this chaotic state. And was, I, I, won't, I won't give you the finale. But, but there is well, I know the finale. We're not in a, the laws of physics have not fallen apart, so obviously they figured out Am I right that it, that it weighed exactly as much as they thought it was going to weigh? No, it, it, it sort of straddled the line between the two possibilities, and so everyone had this wry smile, like "Ah, I can't believe after all this time," you know. <laughs> but they actually saw it and they weighed it, so it, it all paid off. There was there's no like, real commercial application for this thing, okay. but um, but the, the point of my bringing it up today is, you know, I didn't love chemistry, I didn't love science or phys- physics or anything. But it actually made me want to investigate this stuff more. So it's, somehow this two-hour experience sort of thrilled me. And uh, seeing the passion from these people was sort of infectious. So 
I think that's why the critics liked it. Well, and I will say that's one of the values of, of documentaries is that, you know, I can't imagine, actually, I can't imagine making a movie about a collider because I recently saw one. I watched so many crappy movies, as you may know. I saw one about a, uh, a particle collider that sends the scientist into an alternate timeline, and he has to escape back to his timeline because in the alternate timeline, his wife is like uh, a heroin junkie who gets arrested, and there's tornadoes all around the world. So he has to get back to his own timeline. <laughs> but as far as like experiencing the world of physics and what they actually do with these huge particle colliders, uh, a documentary is a great way to give information about that, to be exposed to that world. So, Yeah, it was pretty cool. And a lot of people thought that, like, you know, it, it would, once they got the thing up and running, that they would create black holes and, you know, the, the, the world would end and they would get sucked into this vortex. Right. Yeah. So that was, you know, kind of uh, interesting. All right. the, the other two that I'll just mention – were Omar? Did you did you catch that one? No, but I loved. It's the guy that did Paradise Now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which is about these two brothers who become suicide bombers. Uh, yeah. And I know that's his next movie. I, can you say his name? Because I don't think I know his name offhand. I, I can't even say his name. Okay, I, I don't. I don't know it. But it was just a pretty even-handed uh, sort of. Uh, you know, a lot of times you get people making movies in, in that conflict, and they'll really take a side. But you know, this one obviously, I'm sure, if you were either Israeli or Palestinian, would think it was unfair. But uh, the story was a thriller. It was very interesting, and I would recommend that one. Okay, good, because I definitely want to see that. I remember when that when that came out, thinking, "Oh yeah, I need to look for when that's on DVD." So, Omar, good. Okay. Yeah. Did Did you guys on the podcast do Nymphomaniac? I saw it and waved them off of it. I saw. Okay. I ugh, did you see that? Yeah, I, I did. I, I had you know for me, it was a little bit like ugh, but I thought visually the first one was kind of interesting, but as a as a four hour thing, it was just too much. Well, and, and it was cut, it was, you know, eventually it was going to be one release, and Lars von Trier thought, well, it's too long, I'll make two releases. I, I feel like there was so much just, it was so gratuitous, I mean, there was so much extra stuff in there, and it was so over, just over long, and I, I, yeah, the fact that he split it into two movies just seemed kind of, I almost want to say arrogant, but that's Lars von Trier for you. I, yeah, yeah, I... The ending, too. Just the very ending. I'm like, wait a minute. Come on. I mean, we, we, won't, we won't talk about it, but it's just, yeah. I didn't like it. Uh, oh, so you... Okay, good. Why Why did you see... I, I'm kind of... Did you Did you see the one where uh, Kirsten Dunst gets hit by the planet? Um, yes. Um, melancholia. Melancholia, yeah. I, I kind of almost liked bits of Melancholia, but it felt like it kind of ran away from itself. Um, it, it did. It was so oppressive. I, I saw that at the New Art here on the West Side, like, the night it came out, and... Uh, it was just so heavy, you know, right as you're yeah. expecting the impact. That I, I said that there should have been like a little, you know, the song at the end of a movie sometimes, uh, I don't know what it does, but I think it's, it's interesting. They should have played, um, what is, oh, oh, In Xanadu, you know, by the yeah. old <laughs> that would just, just to sort of make you feel better after experiencing all that. You are right, though. That's a huge creative touch. Like, what? What musical piece are you going to leave me with as the credits are rolling? Yep. Uh, and that can, I think of your next. You know, your next had that boppy little Dwight Twilley song yes. that's part of the action. But when that comes up again at the end of the movie, as the credits are playing and as that final little moment is is happening, like that's part of why I'm giggling at that movie. You know, right. that, that last song that you're left with is so important. Yeah, I had to get that song immediately, and I, I love it, and it's in my playlist. So. Yep, yep, yeah. Well, still done. Uh, what are you looking forward to this summer? Anything? You know, I, I'm, 
I, I know that these big, uh, I was about to say AAA, but that, that's a game. <laughs> but these, these big budget films uh, are hit and miss. Like, I loved the first Iron Man, hated the second one, you know. Huh? Uh, I think you and I differ on uh, Captain America. I didn't like the first one, liked the second one. Okay, a lot of people are like that. Like, a lot of people, yeah, definitely felt like the, the first one was a, a very minor superhero movie, and the second one was the really thrilling one. Yeah. yeah. So I'm looking forward to Guardians of the Galaxy. That looks fun. Um, it reminds me of sort of like the Hellboy sort of sense of humor. Oh, yeah, sure. I can see that. Mm-hmm. So that, that's pretty much it. I mean, um, I, I would have to look at a calendar to, to tell me what's coming out. Godzilla? Yeah, no, I, I'll certainly see that. Did you see his first... So it's a guy, I think his name is, I want to say Gareth Edwards. He did a, an indie giant monster movie called Monsters. Did you see that? No, I didn't. I thought you were going to say The Host, but, uh, but no, I didn't see Monsters. No, God, did you see The Host, the yeah. Susha Ronan thing? Yeah, I, I didn't did, like that so much. Why did you see that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> Just because I see movies, Tom. I, you know, that's my excuse a lot as well, Mark, is, uh, yeah, a lot of times I don't have a good answer for why I saw something. Yeah. By the way, there was this period in 2007 when I, I, I befriended the, the VP or the, the head of marketing for the Landmark Theater chain, and he just said, hey, take this pass. And it was just, uh, you know, see all the, all, all the movies you want for the whole year. <laughs> you bring a guest if you want. I'm like, are you kidding me? And so I took full advantage of that. I was seeing, you know, four or five movies a week in the theater. Well, that's the equivalent of that for me is is uh, Netflix. Like, there are many movies I watch simply because they're on Netflix. And right. I otherwise, if I didn't have Netflix, if I didn't have this repository of all of them right there at my fingertips, I would never watch half these movies. So, yeah, I can imagine what getting that pass was like. Yeah, yeah, yeah Netflix is, is amazing. Um, my problem is I watch too much TV, and my friends will tell you that, too. So I get Oh, on, why are you doing that, Mark? That's eating into precious movie time. I, I, seriously, it's a problem. But... You have certain TV shows, like The Wire or uh, Fargo now on FX. Did you like that? I haven't seen it, but I've heard uh, some buzz about it. Did you, yeah. did you recommend the, the, Fargo? The, the pilot was pretty amazing, okay. so I have not seen that uh, this week's yet. But you know, shows like Justified or Sons of Anarchy, I mean, it, it just there's the argument out there that, that TV is getting better than movies because you can flesh out the characters and have longer storylines. But I almost feel like I, I wish I didn't watch TV because I want to go in and out, have a two or three hour experience and then be done with it. You know, I, I'm so keenly aware and it's almost always after the fact when I've watched an entire series, how much of it was filler and how oh. much of it really was built to just keep me hooked for the duration rather than built to tell a story or develop characters. I mean, TV has a lot more luxury to do stuff, but I think that luxury gets abused a lot more often. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's a rare exception, something like a Breaking Bad, which will, you know, go yeah. against that. Yeah. Or Game of yeah. Thrones. Do you watch Game of Thrones? I, I do, but I, I didn't read the books, so sometimes a little bit, I'm a little bit lost there. And I just, <laughs> I just figure, you know what? I'm, I'm going to understand the big battle scenes and the big killing <laughs> scenes. And so if I can just sort of like, yeah. So right, right. Okay. Uh, I, can't, I can't claim to always know. Like, who, who the hell is this kid? I, I, I watched it with a, a friend, and I'm, I'm constantly pausing it to say, now, who is this person again? Uh, I, I suspect it helps to binge watch Game of Thrones, like to let a season pass and then watch it all in one weekend. Right. Uh, I think if you're watching it in real time, then it, you're kind of setting, putting yourself at a, dis- a minor disadvantage there. So, yeah. Fair yeah, that's, that's what I do with House of Cards, too. I watched the first season last December. I'll catch the second one you know, during the break. Do you recommend that? 
our first season was really good, um, and then I, I've just heard from people say that the second season is, is not 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 quite as good. Isn't that so discouraging when you hear that? Like when when people are like, "Yeah, this season's great," but then that season's bad. Like knowing that I'm in for, oh well, everybody was disappointed with these, you know, ten, twelve hours of the show. Like that's a huge obstacle for me. And oh, yeah. part of it too is is looking for an excuse to not commit to that much TV as well. Yeah. Right. Well, what's what's this British costume drama that everybody watches on PBS? Uh, either Orphan, oh PBS, uh, pri- or no, uh, uh, Downton Abbey. Yeah, Downton Abbey. See, I heard the same thing. Oh, it's a must. The first two seasons, you have to do it, and then everybody's like, ah, season three or four it becomes kind of a soap opera. Take it or leave it. I'm like, screw it. You know, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> if that's what I'm in for, if that's where it's headed, then fine. Let it go on without me. Yeah. Right. But I do watch Orphan Black too. So if if people are talking about it, I'm pretty much watching it on TV, and I'm just a sort of a slave to it, which is sad. So I think Orphan Black, because it has the word orphan, I assumed it was some sort of Dickensian period piece. Uh, I just found out Orphan Black is like sci-fi, isn't it? It is. It is. Clones. Do you like that? I do. I do like it. <sighs> and also, this one actress, this one Canadian actress who's playing all the characters, she's just phenomenal. So you, if you don't like her in the first episode, just skip it. You know what, then? That, that, good, because I like hearing that. The fact that uh, you would focus in on an actor uh, makes me want to see it. So good. Orphan Black. All right. Yeah. Good. All right, well, Mark, I could do this all day, uh, but uh, we'll we'll save it for another podcast or another conversation. Um, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today. Um, I appreciate how supportive you've been on Metacritic. I appreciate the movie tips. So uh, thanks for all that, Mark. Tom, I really appreciate it, too. And, and, you know, keep doing what you guys do on both podcasts. I'll be listening. Absolutely. So, listeners, uh, letting you guys know what's in for next week. Uh, let's see, how to put this without scaring people off. It's super nerdy. It is uh, super nerdy in ways that gaming is not just nerdy, and it will include uh, Bruce Garrick. So uh, join us for that next week. I'm Tom Chick. This has been the Quarter to Three Games podcast, and we'll see everyone in about a week.